And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a midweek vancast. Jay Pat and Drancer as so we arrive at another day. Tom, where the Stanley Cup could be presented. Uh, game five, Montreal stayed alive. I had to laugh the other day. I saw after uh, the Habs won in overtime, uh, some guy tweeted about you being very much on brand uh, with your prediction of the Tampa sweep. Yeah, in that it was wrong. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty good. Um, enjoyed that, for yeah. sure. I enjoyed that, for sure. And, yeah, I mean, uh, not so wrong in spirit on this one in that I didn't expect it to be a close series. But but you have to think this gets more interesting, obviously. Um, with the Habs having won one, some pressure on Tampa Bay, their mayor courting disaster by saying that they didn't want it to be one in Montreal. I always think that's bad vibes. Like, that's bad juju. And then, you know, Braden Point looked a little bit banged up. We know that Nikita Kucherov's had some issues. I mean, wouldn't take a lot for this to shift a little bit. Although, I still just think Tampa Bay has way too much here. And Vasilevsky isn't going to lose three in a row. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to be right, J-Pat. And that's also on brand for our podcast. You'll be right with the five-gamer. Well, we'll see. Uh, yeah. yeah maybe it, 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 well, look, for me, it doesn't get interesting unless Montreal wins, because if they don't win, the, the thing's over. But uh, like Tampa at home, this record of, uh, what, I mean, 13 straight games, I think, in the playoffs uh, two years in a row now where they've bounced back from a loss. Like, they haven't lost back-to-back games. Uh, it's all there on a tee. That's incredible, eh? It is. Yeah. No, I did, absolutely. I mean, among the many, many things to be impressed about or by uh, with this Tampa team, like, that says volumes about a team that just doesn't let a loss bother them, doesn't let a loss sit with them. You know, we always talk about momentum from game to game in the playoffs, and Tampa's like, screw that. <laughs> you beat us once, but you're not going to beat us again. So I uh, fully expect Tampa to get it done. I had to laugh, too. There was another guy that uh, uh, reacted on Twitter suggesting that Mason Appleton's going to get a restraining order against you. I know. That's, <laughs> that's good. That's good stuff. Especially because it's like, he didn't even naturally come up in conversation on our last podcast episode. And I was like, I want to come back to Mason <laughs> Appleton. Like, like, it's like, Trance, we get it. Like, you, you <laughs> um, But yeah, so it goes. I, I, There's a certain type of player I always have a lot of time for. And, and it tends to be like a middle six winger with low scoring totals because he doesn't get power play time. And who's like really good defensively. Like those are like my favorite guys. And I think that's partly why I have this affinity for this Tampa Bay Lightning team, right? Like, 
there's no member of the Tampa Bay Lightning that I'm not willing to ride for as being like way better than the industry believes they are. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, what? Yan Gord and Blake Coleman, first liners. I don't know if you saw it yesterday, but uh, Matthew Joseph, second liner, everyday second liner, I called him during the game, Um, which prompted someone in my mentions to say like, Drance is lobbying for Thunderbug to be on the top pair, (laughs) 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 which I like. But, but Appleton fits that mold. There's a ton of Tampa Bay Lightning players, including like guys who aren't even in the lineup. Guys like Bore Boulay, who I'm like, I would love to see that guy get a shot in a middle six role. Uh, and look, I think a lot of those guys are going to get a shot in a middle six role and probably in Tampa, right? Because that's a team that, you know, not that their window's closing or anything, but they're going to have a really tough time keeping that group together beyond this season. Um, but it's been two really memorable runs from a really well-constructed, great team. Like one of the best teams... For me, for me, I, I consider the Tampa Bay Lightning the best team of the last, you know, 20 years. Like since that Detroit Red Wings team, um, you know, mid 90s through the lockout. Like for me, they're they're that they're up there in that class. Um, you know, I guess the Colorado Avalanche you'd put in that class too. maybe the like late or the turn of the century, New Jersey Devils, like, you know, they rarefied air this Tampa Bay team sure. has, has gotten themselves into. And, and I don't think there's any question of that at this point. Uh, it is a Canuck podcast. We'll get to a couple of Canuck things uh, coming up here. But, you know, we always end by saying, like, we appreciate the feedback. And so I just wanted to acknowledge uh, a couple of items of feedback. There was another one. A guy left a comment in the comment section on the Athletic app, and he was grinding us for basically discussing your written articles here on the pod mm. he's, he's like i read the articles i don't need you guys to read them to me which <laughs> we don't do first of all second of all generally you get a chance on the pod to expound on the article itself and i get a chance to weigh in on it too so uh i'm not having a whole lot of that one but no. i kind of laugh <laughs> I, li- I mean I, I i'm definitely happy to read <laughs> but maybe, maybe maybe i'll read like fiction you know like and, that, and that'll be for August, J-Pat, after you've departed. And the van cast will be like, Drance reads a book. <laughs> I'm going to pitch that to our to our um, podcast people, see what they say. Uh, but, you know, I'm so look, I agree with you. I don't think that's a fair criticism of our work product at the moment. However, I do think it's a good direction for me to potentially go in come August. <laughs> little, little fireside chats yeah. with Drancer. He just gets cozy by the fire and, and reads from his favorite fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, just one other thing quickly. Uh, maybe it won't be quickly. But Hurricane Elsa was threatening Game 5 in Tampa. And I was just thinking, like, you spent three years living in South Florida, did you ever have to sort of batten down the hatches, do any hurricane prep either at home or at the office in your years with the Panthers? Oh, yeah. the So the big one was Irene. Yes. And I was actually, so it was my wedding. <laughs> I got married on a Sunday. And then on the Monday... Florida declared a state of emergency because it became clear that Irene was at least going to potentially hit close. And I was flying to Vancouver that day for my honeymoon, right? And so, um, well, my honeymoon. I was taking a week to go see my family. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we went to Vancouver. And Irene, yeah, amidst a state of emergency, and there was a ton of preparations and, and other things. And I remember I paid to have my 
my car, I mean, you, you were, you came to my place in Florida. It was right on the water, yes. right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so my parking lot was like right there. So I called to get my car towed. Um, <laughs> cause like we put up our hurricane shutters and stuff. When you leave at that time of year in South Florida, you just do that. But the, um, but I paid to have my car towed inland so, <laughs> so that it would be safe. But I remember doing that on like my de facto honeymoon. And then also the hurricane hit and there was some flooding and we couldn't actually come home on the, um, sort of flights that we'd intended on. So we came to, uh, Toronto and we were, we went from being like honeymooners to being refugees basically, right? Like we couldn't go home because of mandatory evacuation order. So I had to ride it out in, in Toronto for an extra couple nights anyway. Um, but that's the one I really remember. Well, that, that was also one where like the team evacuated up to Boston. Um, right. Oh, okay. And, I remember and, that. and we did, yeah. we did a ton of, we did a ton of community work after the fact and on and on, but that was the big one that hit when I was there, but you really, you just like spend the whole time tracking it. Um, not uncommon for the Panthers to have preseason games and on and on affected by this uh, at the tail end of hurricane season. And, and thankfully, it looks like Irene, you know, um, didn't gather the type of hurricane force strength that uh, that would have impacted game five or significantly, um, you know, harmed uh, people and property on Florida's West Coast. So the second year of the three years that I traveled uh, on the beat with 1040, uh, early in the, it would have been October of 2018, the Canucks started at home. They went home and home with Calgary and went from Calgary to Carolina and then did the Florida swing. Right. So this is games three, four, and five of the season. And Hurricane Michael was making its way up the inside of mm-hmm. the Florida coast and eventually made landfall and, and crushed the panhandle, did like all sorts of damage. So yeah. we're in Raleigh. The Canucks are playing, and I remember through the game, like I'm charting the storm because I've got a flight out the next day. Just and- following pet bugs. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there was worry there two days out that the Canucks lightning game might be affected. And anyhow, so I'm monitoring this sort of in real time. I uh, get up in the morning and my flight's still a go. So I get to the airport in Tampa and sure enough, we take off. And I'm not much of a talker on a plane. Like I just get to my seat, head down and headphones in, whatever. Um, but on this one, I remember there was this older gentleman beside me and he struck up a conversation and we got to talking and he was a retired university professor from Minnesota who had devoted his life to the Red Cross, his retirement to the Red Cross. Right. And he got sent to domestic disaster zones uh, and had been away from his family. He had been in North Carolina. There had been all kinds of flooding that year. And he had been there for four months, but he had got the all clear to leave and was now flying to Florida to get ahead of Hurricane Michael. So he's my seatmate on the plane. Fascinating guy, university professor and like a real talker and a, and a bit of a character. And so we get to talking and he's telling me that his role is he's in charge of transport to make sure that the Red Cross has all the vehicles, cars and trucks it needs in the affected area to carry out its mission. And so... Uh, he also informed me that uh, the Red Cross is one of the biggest renters of cars in the United States. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So he goes on and he's telling me what he's been doing in Raleigh for all these months and helping people out. And, and now he's on his way to, to Tampa and he's going to drive up uh, the coast and into the panhandle to, to take care of business and do his thing. And it was fascinating. And then that is fascinating. Sounds and, like a great guy. Yeah. And then he turns and he's like, well, what do you do? 
<laughs> and that's that's my reaction in my head. And I'm like, I cover hockey, and I really don't like it when the Canucks power play drops below ten percent. <laughs> I didn't say the second part, but that's the, the voice in my head is like, oh, my God, this guy is giving up his retirement to get ahead of disaster relief. Yeah. He's already worked an entire career as a university prof, and now he's given up his retirement. I say giving up. I mean, this is what he's committed to. <laughs> and and track home road splits. I fly, <laughs> around, like, I fly around and I watch hockey. It reminded uh, me very much of a high school reunion. I want to say my 20th high school reunion. And I walk in this big room and, you know, I, I've kept touch with a lot of my high school guys. But there was a guy that I hadn't seen probably since graduation. And he comes across the room and he, like, grabs me. He's like, Jeff. Uh, he's like, I listen to you all the time. Like, I remember you wanted to get into sports. This is incredible. Like, I'm so happy for you. And I'm like, yeah, it's been pretty cool. And, you know, I've seen done a lot of things. I'm, How about you? What are you up to? And he's like, uh... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a research scientist. I head up the uh, cancer agency, agency here in town. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not very cool. <laughs> you mean you haven't, you, haven't, you haven't solved it yet? Yeah. <laughs> you haven't found a cure? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yes. Moments of insignificance in my life yeah. uh, on the Canucks beat very oh, much. So, so good. Yeah. So good. Um, no, the... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're blessed to do what we do, and uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're not healing the world through sports talk. <laughs> no, but we we do have a couple of Canucks items to get to. So, yeah. looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Uh, full disclosure to the VIPs. Uh, before our last pod on Monday, we talked about it and this was strategic. And we thought, you know what? They're really like there's a lot of noise around Nate Schmidt, but... Uh, nothing really firm, and so we wanted to let that story breathe for a couple of days before we addressed it, right? Like, we yep. thought maybe there would be some developments. Well, I uh, can't gloss over it anymore because uh, I know that uh, you talked about it uh, on the morning show at 6.50. Friedman was on the radio station. Uh, he pushed it along a little bit as well. Uh, you know, whether these are hardcore you know, demands from Nate Schmidt and his camp, get me out of here. I'm not ever going to play for the Canucks again, or whether it's a little softer than that, that he just wants out. Whatever. Uh, we were talking about storms before. Uh, there seems to be a storm brewing here that is ultimately going to uh, end in a Nate Schmidt trade after one season as a Vancouver Canuck. Yeah, I, I think the <laughs> the reaction yesterday to my radio hit uh, – obviously annoyed me uh, just a little bit, just in that um, I, I felt like on on Monday, effectively, I made some calls just trying to get some clarity on the situation. I didn't really get it because I think everyone's trying to play this close to the best, right? Like, I think this is one that, you know, sunlight is not the best disinfectant here, right? <laughs> there, there, there is a benefit to, you know, I think having less scrutiny or pressure around this situation overall. Uh, my sense of it, though, 
in calling around was just that no one was pouring cold water on it, right? Like I was giving people a chance to repudiate it and, you know, that's not what I was getting. So, you know, the, the understanding that I have uh, anyway, and, and I don't know, I don't know, like I would have put it the way Friedman did, which was that, you know, maybe it's not as firm as a trade request, but there's an understanding that he'd prefer to be dealt and the team sort of is on board with that, right? That was, that, that's a paraphrase of what Friedman said on 650, but I think it's a fair one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I don't know all of that, but if Friedman's saying it, you trust it. What I do have a better sense of is that I do think the Canucks had told Nate Schmidt's camp that, you know, uh, we're going to do what it, whatever it takes to improve the team. And, and to me, I imply from that that, yeah, a, a Schmidt deal is very possible, right? If you're telling a veteran player like, hey, we're going to, I mean, we're going to do whatever it takes in, up to and including trading you. I mean, that's uh, a pretty good indication of, of where this may go. And that's sort of what I presented on the radio. And then, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's making it up. And blah, blah, blah. it's like, no, I, I was just trying to get clarity and I couldn't get it. People were, uh, you know, the people I was talking to were being diplomatic in, in their phrasing. So, yeah, all of that said, do I think there's something here? I do. Um, do I think it's fait accompli that Nate Schmidt moves on? I don't necessarily. Um, but, you know, certainly a situation to monitor and watch and, and not just because of whatever the internal dynamics or, uh, what have you are, but also because the way that this off season is structured for the Canucks and, and their limited cap space, like if you're going to acquire any type of big piece, you need to be sending salary out. And aside from the guys who play PP1, you know, and Thatcher Demko effectively, like the core guys, like who are you going to move that's attached to salary that has value, right? I mean, it's got to, you, you come back pretty quickly to Schmidt. Like, I don't think Myers has a ton of value on, on his contract. I don't think Beagle does. I don't think Roussel does. I don't think Holtby does. Uh, certainly Erickson does not. But Schmidt, you know, there's teams that would have time. Nate Schmidt, even though he didn't have the best first season in Vancouver, right? Like there are still teams that know, hey, this is a guy who can play tough minutes. He's done so for great teams. He's basically the number one defenseman for a Vegas team that won a ton of games over three years. Like this is a player who can do an awful lot. There's value there. So if you're going to make a hockey deal that brings in a big salary, like including Nate Schmidt in it, I mean, that just makes sense. Like I don't think you need to overthink or or read too much into whatever the sort of personal dynamics are internally to have a sense that you know in seeking to make these types of deals like Nate Schmidt's contracts one that can help the Canucks lubricate or, or or create the space needed to acquire the type of piece that you know certainly you'd expect them to want to be able to add this offseason so that's my sense of the dynamic anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, in a perfect world, we'd all find out the reason why. Like, what was it about this first year? Was it, you know, was the COVID situation the way it was handled? We know that there was talk about disgruntled players behind the scenes. Uh, You know, was it, you know, he's going to turn 30 at the end of next week. Is it him just sort of having an epiphany that uh, the direction of this team isn't something that he wants to be a part of, the competitive window? You know, because it can't be about his role. Like, he played a lot. He was mm-hmm. second to Quinn Hughes in power play ice time by a, a long shot because we know that the first unit uh, spent most of the time on the ice and the second unit wasn't terribly productive. But he was second among Canuck defensemen in power play ice time and he was third among D-men in penalty killing ice time. So, like, he played. He played a lot. He played both sides. You know, I don't – if it's a role thing, 
Like, I'd be surprised at that. And if he felt that there was a problem with the role, I would put some of that back on him because I think we all agree his first year and maybe his only year as a Canuck, it was pretty underwhelming. And we've gone through the reasons why. And, you know, 15 points for a guy that was sort of billed as a 30 to 40 point defenseman in an 82 game season. Uh, He didn't have any power play points. And in fact, I looked at it this morning. He was on the ice for two power play goals for for the Vancouver Canucks this season. Insane. The second power play unit was so anemic, right? Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, like Schmidt didn't have a great first season in Vancouver. I think there's some fit issues there, uh, especially playing with Edler. I just don't think that pair really worked. And, you know, in terms of in terms of reasons, you know, I I suspect this is one where we'll get more clarity in the in the weeks to come um, one way or another. But, uh, but yeah, for now, I, I do think it's a, a little premature. Uh, my sense of it, anyway, is just I, I do think that um, there was a group of players who were annoyed by the way that the organization communicated internally. Uh, wouldn't surprise me, certainly, if Schmidt was among that group. I would think if he wants out and he wants a trade to actually happen, then it's probably in his best interest you know, not to pop off and to make this a messy situation because that's only going to complicate matters for Jim Benning, right? And if it complicates matters for Jim Benning, I mean, the Canucks, they can try to trade him, but they're not just going to give him away. They, they've got to make a deal that ultimately uh, maximizes the return, works for them as, as best it can. And so, you know, Nate Schmidt, like we know, like he's a gregarious guy, generally hasn't met a microphone that he doesn't like. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody put a mic in front of his face and gave him a chance. You know, he might spill all the reasons, but I don't know that that helps the Vancouver Canucks achieve their goal. So uh, it's been sort of eerily quiet around Nate Schmidt. Remember, Nate Schmidt didn't, like, he, he spoke on the last game day, but he wasn't among the guys that was there uh, in that final sort of year-end Zoom. So, um, you know, who knows? Who knows if we'll ever find out the reason why, but... Uh, I have to think that if the Schmidt camp stays quiet, that's probably in the best interests of Jim Benning and the Vancouver Canucks just to try to do uh, the business here to to try to facilitate a deal. Yeah, and I think there's at least a sense that, you know, at least there's a sense of cooperation, clearly, because it is being kept close to the vest and there have been no salacious comments from anyone and any public comments have seemed to be tamping down on the speculation and on and on. So, you know, that that's a good sign anyway, as the Canucks look to navigate this, because of course, you know, Schmidt does have a 10 team, no trade. Right. Um, you know, th- this isn't a simple deal to make in the event that Canucks do in fact make it. And so we'll see where this goes. Uh, additionally, right. There's a ton of protection issues that come out of any, any defenseman that moves here in the next little bit. So, um, there's that dynamic to be aware of too, and how that could impact things. Uh, we'll see. Like, well, this is one to watch, but it's not. You know, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's one that. Again, as I said, I don't think it's a fait accompli that it ends in a certain way, right? And and I don't think there'd be. Um, like, I don't think there's a any <laughs> anything as dramatic as burn bridges or or what have you, right? I, I just think that there's certainly something there. Um, and hopefully we'll get some clarity on what that something is, uh, you know, at some point. It is crazy, though. I mean, it just it underscores sort of how quickly things move uh, in professional sports. If you think back, it was Thanksgiving weekend that was free agency 
uh, last offseason after the bubble. So we're talking about early October. We know how it all played out for the Canucks. And, you know, we were there recording basically on a daily basis through it all and the, the fever pitch on that Monday, Thanksgiving Monday, when Toffoli left and, and signed with Montreal. And then it was later that night that the Canucks announced the Nate Schmidt deal. So clearly through it all, the Canucks front office knew they had the Nate Schmidt condor, the, the trade in their back pocket. Yeah. And at the time, getting a top four guy for a third round pick, like it looked like a, a stroke of genius. So it hasn't even been 12 full months. It's been one season, one 56 game regular season and no playoffs. Uh, it's been one season. And now you're looking at a guy that's going to be 30, four years left at almost six million per. And just the perception of the trade, the player after one year, that contract, like, you know, people were excited and rightly so. It looked like the Canucks had landed a guy that was going to be a top four defenseman for them for a while. And here they are now trying to figure out the best way to maximize the return on moving him out of town. Yeah. Well, and I do, you know, I, I mentioned this on the radio yesterday, but I do sort of wonder if we were almost late to putting together the logic of the flat cap era and how how difficult it was going to be to move out any contracts for non-star players, right? Because the reaction to that trade was like, Nate Schmidt for a third, like, what's the downside, right? And now, yeah. and now, <laughs> as we see, like, Arvidsson deals and, and, you know, a variety of contracts in that same realm and the prices, like, it's become more and more apparent with the way waivers unfold last season, right? Like, it's become more and more apparent how disposable non-star players with term and money um, committed to them are for teams around the NHL. Like, more than anything else, what teams around the NHL value, it seems, based on market prices and, and how everyone's behaving, is flexibility. Like, flexibility is first and foremost um, in, in the minds of everybody. It seems. So, you know, I, I think that's fundamentally changed how we view trades and trade prices and the gambles that play, teams and players are, are sort of making on, on, you know, building their rosters. So I, I just think that's... That's one where it was like, I wonder how much our reaction to it would have been different if the Canucks make that trade this week versus last year. Like last year, yeah, home run, win, obvious. And now, anytime a team adds money in term, people are much more circumspect in how they break it down versus the price paid to acquire that player. I think that speaks to a massive sea change, pandemic-induced, in how NHL teams are operating at the moment. And that, and that has fascinating implications too, especially for... July 28th when the market opens. So uh, let's just play this through then because you can do that on a, on a podcast like this one. Uh, you know, what, what would be the best return? And I'm talking hypothetically here for the Vancouver Canucks. If they could get a third round pick at this stage and move out from under that contract and basically it would have just been renting Nate Schmidt for a year, like would you take that kind of trade or this is a team that needs to reshape its defense. It needs somebody that can play and play big minutes. This is a general manager that has put it on the record that, you know, making the playoffs is a must for his hockey club and probably for him personally. Like, there's so much at play. Their defense was already this massive area of concern, and now you've got this chip. But as we've talked about, it may not be an easy one to move along. So, like, what would be the best return for the Vancouver Canucks or the best idea of a return yeah. on an H. Schmidt trade? No, it's, it's not a simple one to do. I mean, on the one hand, you know, Bundling Schmidt with other assets in pursuit of a meaningful top six forward or, you know, a meaningful upgrade, it has to be appealing, right? Because 
at least then you can send out six million and take back actual money. And that's probably the only way that the Canucks can bid on, you know, some of the sexier names that have been in the market. Like if the Canucks are big game hunting, for example, right? Uh, Schmidt for X guy that's getting talked about way too much in this marketplace, considering the Canucks' cap situation, let's say Sam Reinhardt or, or Seth Jones, right? That becomes a realistic possibility, you know? Um, because you're sending six million out. <laughs> now you have flexibility to potentially go big game hunting. So I wonder if there's an appeal to that approach for, for Vancouver's pers- from Vancouver's perspective. And then the other one would be, you know, can you find a guy who's out of favor or not playing as much as their contract would sort of dictate they should be? on another team who maybe has one year left. And and here I come back to uh, a favorite name of mine from, you know, a, a lot of, he gets brought up in a lot of the articles that I've been writing, but you know, a guy like, um, a guy like Marcus Nudevara, right. And I yep. keep coming back to Nudevara in part because, um, you know, he's got the relationship with Brad Shaw, Brad Shaw brought him up on the radio. Right. I mean, there's a, uh, uh, there'd be an obvious affinity there. He's the guy who can play the left or right side like Schmidt, right? Allows you to save $3 million in cap space for next season or just over $3 million in cap space um, and move off a liability. Like, is it worth the additional flexibility, both short and long term, to the Canucks to make that type of swap, right? And, and we also do know that Florida had interest in Schmidt last summer. So that would be sort of another approach, the more conservative approach. Like, get a guy who can play minutes for you, right? Um, but who expires more quickly and gives you 3 million cap space, which is the equivalent that the Canucks would net from a, a Holpe buyout. And now all of a sudden you're looking at a Canucks team that can really go shopping in free agency, maybe even adding or, or, or on the trade market. Like if you, if you make that type of deal and have 3 million in additional space, then the Canucks can be players for Arvidsson type deals, right? Like then the Canucks can take back a $4 million salary in a trade. Um, or sign a $4 million free agent to play top four minutes for them, or, or middle six forward, or what have you. I mean, there's real flexibility uh, from that approach. So that's sort of the other one that I think about. It, 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 the two major approaches essentially are you can bundle Schmidt six and go big game hunting, or you can do something a little more conservative and return an NHL player that also enhances your flexibility. Maybe the player's not quite as good or quite as valuable, but the additional flexibility can help you improve elsewhere. And and those are sort of the two primary approaches that I'd be watching for as the Canucks, you know, in the event the Canucks do decide to pursue this type of trade over the course of the next three weeks. I'm glad you brought up the the Bradshaw interview on 650 because we didn't talk about it at the time, but I found it hysterical, to be perfectly honest with you. Like once the hire was in place and we had all talked about like this defensive whisperer and he's worked with Petrangelo in St. Louis and and he's worked with, you know, Seth Jones and and Zach Wierenski and look at Zach Wierenski, all this offense. And he went to Michigan and guess who else went to Michigan and put up all this offense and and, you know, the things he's going to do with Quinn Hughes. And then they asked him a question about Quinn Hughes and he's like. Yeah, but Marcus Nudavara like, was the first name, like, you know, he wasn't prompted. And I thought that was fascinating that he brought him up as an example. And, and you sort of connected the dots here 
Uh, and I think, you know, when he talked about Nadavar, he talked like glowingly about how his first training camp, he showed up at like 160 pounds and he thought like, how's this guy going to play in the NHL? And all he did was win every single puck battle in training camp and preseason and, you know, stick position and body position and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, fascinating because hockey is all about connecting dots and personal connections. So uh, I, I'm glad you brought that name up and we'll just kind of leave it here uh, you know, to marinate on the podcast and see where things go. But uh, yes, absolutely a connection between uh, new Canucks assistant Brad Shaw and that player that could be on the market. So we'll see where things go. You know, all of this, Tom, though, it's fascinating to me. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, time is ticking. Like if you listen, you can hear that clock. It is July 7th as we record this. Protectionalists have to be in on July 17th. Like we are 10 days from teams submitting their protected lists for Seattle expansion. When you think of all of the talk that we have had on this podcast and all that you guys have written about, you know, finding teams in protection pinches and poaching and all those things, we're 10 days away. Like, yeah, I know. Well, and the cup final is not even over, right? So I know. So the buyout window hasn't opened uh, and that's going to put some other players on the market that perhaps, you know, we hadn't thought about. Uh, quality players that may not be looking for as much money, but just looking for a place to play. So the buyout window is, you know, it, it's going to be of interest to the Canucks, but it could have Canuck implications league-wide in terms of, you know, I don't want to say flooding the market, but adding to the market of available oh, yeah. players when free agency gets there. So, it, yeah, like, it, yes, the Stanley Cup continues and it hasn't been presented yet. And we're all working against this, hockey deadline of July 17th, like the protectionists have to be submitted. So uh, we are going to get some activity and it's going to happen yep. sooner rather than later. And so, you know, every little item, uh, you know, has significance because ultimately all these teams have to come up with their protected lists and, you know, the clock is ticking towards that opportunity. And it, it is, it's a legit opportunity for the Vancouver Canucks it is. if they can play their cards right. But we've been talking about it forever. We're 10 days away from the roster freeze going into effect. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's a couple different directions we can go. First, let's talk secondary market, right? Because uh, the other thing that the flat cap era will usher in again this year, even though like the worst of the cash crunch that teams are facing, I think is over because I think teams are looking ahead to now being able to sell tickets this fall. And, and as a result of that, I think that, you know, you're going to see more teams function like normal, including the Canucks, as opposed to functioning just with an eye toward keeping the lights on. There'll be a real emphasis on winning. And like one thing I'm glad about with the Montreal Canadiens having made the Stanley Cup final is like, they were the only team that seemed to be after winning (laughs) this last off season. And it's good to see that type of ambition rewarded, even if, you know, I think this was a bit of a miracle run and an unlikely one. Like that's not a model to replicate aside from, you know, keeping in mind that when everyone else is pinching pennies, if you're willing to spend, your buying power goes an awful lot further and you can do a ton of interesting things, you know, um, adding all the pieces that they were able to add, um, including the overtime goal scorer in game four, right? So, but the secondary market in particular was way more robust than we would have expected. I mean, Anthony Duclair... Alex Wenberg, like there were surprising names that ended up available in free agency as a result of the buyout window last time around. And I do think you're going to see some similarly surprising names here, right? Um, One guy to look for, in my view, is Nick Schmaltz. Nick Schmaltz has the one 
third accounting still because he's young. Right. He's on a big ticket in Arizona. He played really well this past year, but nonetheless, like that's a big ticket and you can buy it out at a discount price this is the last summer when they can really do it. Like that's an interesting name to me to watch for. I'm not saying he's going to bu- get bought out. This is not like inside information or anything. This is me going through, you know, player contracts and wondering uh, uh, about whether or not there's a, a point of leverage there, um, you know, in a, a conversation with the Coyotes. Um the other, the other one that I'm sort of eyeing as like a stretch, you know, I, I expect he'll get qualified, but maybe not. The, the guy that I'm watching is Tyler Bertuzzi in Detroit because he just had back surgery. He's got a $3.5 million qualifying offer. He plays a really aggressive game and his counting stats are great. Like this is a guy who scored at a 50 point pace over the last three seasons. So he's going to have a really strong arbitration case. There's a lot there that makes me wonder you know, I, I and now look, I think Detroit's in a position where they can assume that risk themselves, right? Come to a one-year settlement, have Bertuzzi bounce back and trade him for a first at the deadline next year. I'm sure a team in a rebuilding mode uh, managed by someone as savvy as Iserman has their, you know, has the full picture in mind in making those decisions. But, you know, whether it's Denton Heinen or Warren Vogel, another athletic favorite, um, hmm. or, you know, Ryan Donato, um on and on down the list, like there's a lot of RFAs, guys who are really good players or, or at least useful players um, who I do think will go non-tendered and that'll sort of swell up uh, available options for teams like Vancouver on July 28th. That, that's one thing to watch for here too. And then the other thing that I want to quickly go over is like, why don't we just quickly go over what people can expect over the course of the next 20 days? Because it's Hockey news Armageddon July, basically. Like, we've never covered a free agent period in July. But let's go over some of the critical dates and just sort of lay out what people can expect. All right? Yes. The buyout window. Yeah. And there's been a little bit of confusion on this one. But because of the tilted calendar and because everything's so compressed, the buyout window opens 24 hours after the Stanley Cup is presented this year. Right. And so just keep that in mind when the commission gets out there and – Hands the cup to the Tampa Lightning, probably tonight. Um, you know, Wednesday night, we're looking at Friday morning, the buyout window opens. And that's yeah. where we talk about, you know, Jim well, Benning's talk. And I think it's Friday at 12.01 a.m. Right. It's uh, All I ever see written is 24 hours after the cup is presented. So yeah. I don't know if somebody's got a stopwatch from the minute. They, <laughs> no, but, no but, it's not like but, that. It's like but by uh, Friday. Yeah. But by Friday. And again, I think we're all expecting that Rutanen's going to get a buyout. And, but Jim Benning has, you know, he's used the plural. He's talked about buyouts, like, you know, and, and maybe that's just the way he's speaking. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's quite possible that there will be another option. So, you know, a ton of intrigue around the Canucks, but also what happens around the league, uh, who else gets bought out. Those players will then be unrestricted free agents on the 28th. So there's the buyout window. The roster freeze is 2 o'clock our time on the 17th. So 10 days from now, rosters have to be handed to the National Hockey League. Seattle gets a couple of days to... Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. That's the deadline to submit protection lists. Two yes. hours earlier is the roster freeze. The roster freeze. Okay. Yes, right. Yeah. Okay. So then, Noon on the 17th. So the 17th is the protected lists. Then Seattle has a couple of uh, days to talk to unrestricted free agents and, and wheel and deal. Uh, the expansion draft itself goes the night of the 21st. So we're two weeks from today as we record this. And then a week, be- well, then there's the draft, the two days of the draft, 23rd and the 24th. Yeah. And then 
Three weeks. Three weeks from today, free agency opens. Like, we are three weeks away, Tom, from the Canucks basically shaping their roster for next season. Like, yeah. you know, th- there can still be trades. Uh, it could go a couple of days into free agency. But we're three weeks from today from the free agency window opening. And given whatever the Canucks do, like, there's a pretty good chance. Three weeks from now, as we record one of our final VanCasts together, we'll have a pretty good sense of what the Canucks are going to training camp with. Yeah. And and so also in there, you've got the qualifying offer deadline, right? Which is the 26th. Yeah. Um, so two days after the conclusion of the draft, you've got the qualifying offer deadline. As we've seen, that's going to be a very, very interesting source of secondary talent that'll be available on the 28th. And then on the 27th, right, you've got the buyout window closing. So the buyout window is open to teams through the roster freeze, through the expansion process, through the draft, and and through the qualifying offer deadline. And then it hits. And, and it's important to keep in mind, like, you know, it makes sense for teams to buy time as much as possible and wait till the last, wait till the last minute, right? Having explored all other avenues, retain salary transactions, etc., to get off contracts that they might buy out before using those buyouts. So buyouts can go as late as the uh, 27th of July, and I'd expect teams to use it. And then in August, we've got you know whatever arbitration. Uh, that's when we get into the the real dog days of the hockey offseason. But July, anyway, this year, usually that would be the dog days, not this time around. It's going to be extraordinarily busy. And I do think we're going to see an awful lot of moves um, from teams looking to upgrade their rosters. No doubt. All right. Uh, just a couple of final items of note. Uh, we always recommend other pod options for you here at The Athletic. Adam Fox, the Recently named Norris Trophy winner, joined Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on the two-man advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. So you might want to take a look at that. And we say it every time, check out our comments section for every podcast episode. But don't tell us that all we do is read Tom's articles. No, uh, we didn't even have an article to read today. <laughs> Proof pudding. Yes. Uh, check out our comment section for every podcast episode at the Athletic app. Rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. And if you're not already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 per month. All right. I think we call it a day there. Stanley Cup awarded tonight? Yes. Yeah, I think so too. I say yes. Then let's get on with the offseason. Let's go. Give me fun. Yeah. Hey, for your answer, it's Jay Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.